On this episode of The Art Dealer Show, you'll hear gallery owner and recent author Bridget Mayer say... I had zero clients, zero money. However, I knew the alternative for me was to continue to fight it out working in places I didn't want to work in. Welcome to The Art Dealer Show, a podcast about the people who sell art and for the people who sell art. My name is Danny Stern, and today on the show we have art dealer, gallery owner, and now author, Bridget Mayer. Her recently released book, The Art Cure, is an autobiography of sorts. It's a journey, if you will, taking you from some very traumatic beginnings in her young life that seem like the least likely beginnings for someone who would eventually become an internationally recognized art dealer. We'll also get into the early stages of her art gallery business, where she started out of a one-room apartment in a very unlikely city to begin an art gallery of Philadelphia, and talk about how she grew that tiny little operation into a one that is known globally and has had great success. But we'll get back to that in a little bit. For now, let's have a short one at our usual table at the old art dealer bar. Recently, I was doing a little bit of a tour with uh, some of the galleries we show our artists with in Hawaii. Aloha out there to uh, all my Hawaiian art dealer friends. This is one of my favorite things to do. I love getting to see the people who actually sell our artists' works, stand there in their galleries, spend a little bit of time with them, and sometimes, if I'm lucky, I get to see one of my artists' works presented to an up, maybe get to even see a sale. Or even better, and I like this kind of especially, get invited to share something about the artist's works myself. But what I like most, and keep in mind, I'm about to put something ahead of just getting to go to Hawaii for business. What I like most is sharing with the dealers on the floor the stories about the artists. It may be my favorite thing I get to do as an artist's agent. And it's definitely the thing I miss most about no longer being on the gallery floor myself on a daily basis. Simply put, I love telling stories. The ability to tell an engaging, entertaining, downright captivating story. To me, this is the key thing that differentiates us from clerks, counter salespersons in department stores, car dealers on a lot saying, What will it take to put you into this beauty today? This is what differentiates a mere transactional sales worker from being a bona fide skilled art dealer, art consultant if you prefer. And to me, the difference between being a good art dealer and a great art dealer is whether they have risen to the heights of of a downright raconteur, maybe one day in the far off future, if I should ever happen to have a headstone. Someone will think to put that one word on it. That would be the most perfect headstone that I could have. For us art dealers, the people who make a living one way or the other selling art, this is often the first thing we learn about our profession. If you strip it down, what we are, we are storytellers. And if you eventually arrive at this one realization, over time, 
many other related truths will start to reveal themselves to you. And they'll all seem to be somehow threaded back to that very one thing. Now, for some of us, it happens instantaneously. It can even happen the first day on the job. And for others, it somehow seems to take years to figure this out. But one way or another, when you eventually come to this realization, here's the second one that follows. The story that you have to offer is half the product that you're selling. They'll take this story home just as much as the art itself. It's the batteries they'll put inside the toy that makes it run. And it's the performance that they'll get to tell their friends when they come over. They'll tell the story like they had climbed to the top of a mountain to meet a monk who had been carrying it for a lifetime, waiting to break their vow of silence only when the person who finally bought the painting had arrived for them to share it with. Okay, maybe I've gone a little bit too far. But it's still the truth. When I worked on gallery floors, I had times where collectors would show up out of the blue. They would come in with their friends, and they would drag them over to me enthusiastically, and they would say, Danny, tell them about the painting that we just bought. Why did they do that? Sure, I can put on a fun show at... At least I hope so, and, well, at least it's a free one. But that's not really it. At least not entirely. Here's why. It's because of the next thing that an art dealer figures out. The next thing that they learn related to that truth that we are storytellers. That the story proves the value. They want me to tell the story because, like any good presentation about a piece of art... It establishes a value for the piece of art. And the best part is, being a story, it can do so in a context and on the terms that the storyteller establishes. Stories are their own worlds, with their own rules, and in them, the artists are geniuses. And the work in this gallery, a gallery that you serendipitously fell into from right off the street, happens to have the greatest examples of. And the greatest of all of them is the one you were drawn to. This very one. The one we now have up on the rail underneath the lights in this viewing room. So back to those people who drag their friends in for me to tell them the story about their artwork. Well, here's why they were doing that. They were tasking me to tell them the story that explains what I just explained. They're asking me to tell the story that explains that they found a great artist and they picked out one of their best works and that they had bought something spectacularly important. They were asking me to define not only the value of the artwork, but the value of their acquisition and more importantly, the value of who they were now that they were collectors of the work. Okay, let's not get too lost in the psychology of the art collector here, at least not for this one conversation. Uh, Let me get back to just this ongoing story point that I've been harping on here. Let me make another point about it. And an important distinction, too. There is a very big difference between a well-told story, an effectively told story, and knowing a good tale. And that difference, well, that's solely on the person who tells the story themselves. So why do I make a point of that? Well, the fact is, to be a great storyteller, you have to know your own voice. You have to settle on it. 
And to do that, you have to know who you are. And what I mean by knowing who you are, I'm not talking about those deep questions that you have to face, you know, when you're going through uh, a midlife crisis or something. I'm, I mean, you have to know at least who you are in that moment. Who are you? Who is this person who stands here on a gallery floor telling people who randomly walk in from off the streets about artwork and the artist and its importance and its value? Who is that person? What gives you authority? What makes you special in this moment? If you can answer that and be comfortable with that answer, well, it becomes very easy to tell the story. More importantly, just as importantly, you have to believe the words that are coming out of your own mouth. You can't just randomly say things. They have to not only be words that you know that are true, but are words that you know have meaning and value. Because quite frankly, how could they have any value to the person who's listening to you if they don't have value to the person who is speaking them? Like I said, it's what separates the art dealers from the salespeople. And there's one other thing to learn. Often it's far down the line, but ironically, it should be the very first thing that we're taught. It should be the very first thing that we're tuned into when we're first getting a job as an art dealer. So if no one else has told this to you before, let me be that first. For good or for bad, Take it as you will. That above all else, what being an art dealer is, heck, what just being in the art business is, what many of you may be eyeball deep in right now and not even be aware of, it's that the art business is show business, baby. What do you mean hardly anyone came to your last art opening? What? But, you know, with all the press you had and, and the social media chatter and... No, no no social media ch- No press. Well, I mean, you had the mayor come down there, right? With the key to the city. But no, no one came from the city. Not even that kind of creepy uh, guy on the city council. He No, he didn't come either. Well, you know, you got a couple write-ups at least. No, it didn't make it in the paper, you say. I mean, well... Who is the artist? Well, yeah, that artist, he's fantastic. I mean, his art sells everywhere I hear, and you must have sold a ton of it. Not really that much, huh? Who was your publicist? Because no one? Buddy, you've got a top-drawer gallery. Your, your artist is one of the best out there. You deserve to work with a pro. You needed to give a call to Allison Zucker-Perlman and her crack team at Relevant Communications, yeah, check them out over at relevantcommunications.net. They've worked with the best in our business. And most importantly, the best keep on coming back because they get results. Go give Allison Zucker Perlman a call. Go check them out at Allison Zucker Perlman's website, relevantcommunications.net. Hey, gallery owners. What if I told you there was a place where swarms of art collectors traveled for miles to get to, enthusiastically looking for new works of art? Sound interesting? Hey, artists, what if I told you there was a place where art dealers and gallery owners by the droves flocked to just to discover new artists who they could feature on their walls? Sound crazy? I know, I know it kind of does, but there is a place, and that place is New York City. Okay, 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 I've got more details for you. 
I'm talking about Art Expo New York 2017, put on by our sponsor partner, Redwood Media Group, this April the 21st through the 24th on Pier 94, in the year of 2017, of course. This is where the art business comes together. For more information about exhibiting or just attending, go on over to their website at artexponewyork.com. But you say, Danny, I'm in the future. It's the year 2020, not 2017. I'm just listening to a really old episode of this great podcast. What should I do? Relax. Just sit back in that self-driving Uber car that you're probably in and go over on whatever device it is you future folks use these days and look up that website, artexponewyork.com. I'm sure there's a 2020 version of this, too. Listen to this. Quote, Glad I saw your first ad in Art World News. End quote. That's an excerpt from a review about this very podcast on iTunes. It's written by Can Do Man, and he goes on to say that he's a framer who's been in the business for the past 25 years. Can Do Man saw my ad in Art World News. He's now a listener to this podcast because of it. There's so much packed in that statement. One, ads work. Two, they work in Art World News, especially. Three, Can Do Man is no slouch. He's in our business. Four, this is where professionals like Can Do Man can be found. Five, they come to Art World News to know what's going on in the business. I love it when things work exactly like they should. Get what you need at Art World News. It's exactly what it should be. Like I was talking about before, there is a lot of show business in what we do. To one degree or another, the people in this business, by desire or by default, are performers, entertainers, actors. Not deceptively so, but we carry some versions of an image. Jet setter, scholarly art professor, or even the, oh shucks, I'm just a country store owner with some pretty paintings on my wall. These characters are what we wear that allow us to find the balance between our honest selves and the image of the person the collectors feel should be selling things of such value. The path to finding these personalities we wear, like work clothes, are what some entertainers would call finding your voice. It's personal and very individual. The process of finding your own voice typically comes from digging deep finding out what's really inside of you what are the things you value the things that get you up in the morning and also along with that the things that can weigh you down sometimes down so deep they're like shackles around our ankles that's where i think we begin with our guest bridget mayer bridget along with being a successful art dealer and gallery owner in philadelphia has just written her very first book the art cure a memoir of abuse and fortune. As you can imagine, this is a journey that starts in a place that most of us would never want to revisit ourselves. I grew up in sheer poverty. I mean, I, uh, I was abused for the first nine years of my life. I was in and out of foster care. I was pretty much beaten down like a, an animal. And um, uh, so... 
my natural inclination wasn't to go into an industry where um, I was around a lot of wealthier, well-to-do, successful people. There aren't many people with my background that would have stepped into the art world. It's probably the last place many people would go because it's a very challenging, very niche type industry where um, there is a lot of affluence and money. And, and it took a lot of confidence for me to grow into that. Despite being an unlikely person with her background, Bridget set out the way many others have before her. While in her 20s, she got a job as a dealer working the floor in a prestigious art gallery in New York City. She worked with wealthy collectors, started to learn the ropes, got some really nice sales on her belt too. But it was not a fit. After a year, she knew that continuing this way probably meant not continuing at all. She wanted to sell art, but not like this. These were not the people she connected with. Maybe ever would. So with only one year of experience in the trade, she set off to open up a gallery of her own. I knew enough about running these businesses, having worked on the inside of them, to start my own. And I literally knew I was starting from scratch. I didn't have any backers. I didn't have anyone putting any money into it. And as I say in my book, I had zero clients, zero money. However, I knew the alternative for me was to continue to fight it out working in places I didn't want to work in. So the authentic side of me said, it doesn't matter how afraid I am, I will step into it and I'll just let each event lead me to the next one and I'll see what shows up and if I should continue down this path. And so that's what I did. Bridget not only took a risk of bucking the gallery system, putting in your years on the floor, becoming a director, coming up through the ranks. But in addition to that, she decided to leave New York as well, to the unlikely market of Philadelphia. And what attracted me to Philadelphia, uh, that it's a to me, a working class, blue collar type of place. And that's how I grew up. And I'm a worker. And I liked that I could be a larger fish in a smaller pond in Philadelphia and that the marketplace really did need a great contemporary art gallery that was showing artists on a serious level and presenting them on a serious level. So here she is, a year of experience selling art, no backers, and 26 years old at that. Opening a new art business in a town with very few other galleries, let alone a market of collectors necessarily waiting for another one to arrive. It was a lot of work. And I look, I, I see myself clearly. I was in the gallery all the time and I was working nonstop with this passion and drive to make it happen. And there were a lot of things in the first month. And uh, one was getting into this space that was a, pretty dirty, dusty, beat up space on Washington Square that hadn't been occupied in over five years and was an office space. And I didn't have a car. Um, so I was taking taxis to Home Depot and being really resourceful about how I was setting up the gallery. And I did a lot of the work myself, um, painting walls, um, hanging track lighting, which in hindsight, I think back and I'm like, I, that's crazy. I opened in May of 2001. I had a great opening. And then literally a month later, I felt the foot traffic die down and it continued uh, June, July and August. And 
that's where I realized, oh, wow, everyone from Philadelphia clears out for the summer and heads to the beach. And so things were very quiet for me over the summer. I didn't do a lot of business, which uh, was a little bit discouraging. And then coming back in September, I thought, okay, everyone's back to work and I'm going to have a great opening. And then 9-11 happened. Everything just shut down. I had about six months worth of savings that I knew would cover me. And this is where a little bit of bravery came in for me. And I, I just knew that I had to get through the first year so I didn't default on my lease. And the scary part is I was watching it diminish pretty rapidly because I, I still had all my expenses over the summer. And then really the next two months, I, I sold one print for $400. An artist came in and bought something and I, I made 200 bucks. I, I'm down to almost nothing. Um, and then I had a really great show and it really brought the community out. And that's when the sales started coming in. And basically that show helped me get through the next three months ahead of me. And I just kept building like that. Early on when I opened my business, I was constantly getting questioned about, well, where did you come from and who are you? And talk about your resume and, you know, why are you opening this gallery? So I, I felt like I was uh, constantly defending my decisions and the artists I was showing. And um, partly because I wasn't from Philadelphia and people didn't know me. And I did come from out of nowhere. So that was part of my early beginning. I'm wondering why the choice of Philadelphia market you identified that did not have a particularly sophisticated gallery scene in existence. And I'm thinking, here it is, you're coming from New York, the, the most established gallery city in the country, where people know everybody's pedigree. If you're new, we know you're new, right, in that town. And people can assess you pretty quickly, because we know, even if you haven't been in the art business, who else you already knew, who you studied with, if you have an art education, all of those things are very on the surface. Yeah. And the collectors are pretty savvy, too. Yeah. Philadelphia, was it potentially at all attractive because there were no established standards for any of that coming into the market? I, I didn't really know about the types of collectors in the city. And I wasn't really thinking about um, people knowing me. I was, I was more interested in uh, making a living in the art world and what my next, um, how I was actually going to do that and make it a reality. I was still green that I didn't know that there weren't too many contemporary artists in Philadelphia that were actually doing well. And when I figured that out, then it became another drive of mine to create a program where I would curate 15 to 20 artists and really build with them uh, at zero and help them build a career and that I'd be responsible with them and for them. So that was appealing to me. What part of that was most exciting? Starting from scratch, like literally someone walking out of grad school, like they didn't have a following. They weren't known. Um, I wasn't known and that we could join forces and uh, I could help drive their creative process. Was there any joy in kind of being their champion, being their hero in it? Oh, yeah. You... And I was someone that any time a client bought a painting, I immediately got on the phone with the artist. and. There's a lot of excitement and I'm someone where I, I pay my artists immediately. So I just loved writing checks to artists. I still do. 
there's joy in that. And I do feel like um, I can be a hero in that. And I don't think a lot of art, all art gallery owners are like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I sometimes I'm too connected to the artists that I that I've worked with. And I've had to realize, okay, I have to stand back and separate. And I've had artists where I've written thirty, forty thousand dollars in checks to them, which to me is a lot of hard work. And and I've watched it disappear. And I've had moments of frustration and even tears where um, I feel like I'm trying to make an impact in someone's financial life and they're not actually taking care of the money coming in from their art career. And at times like that, I've, I've had to take a step back and say, okay, my job is this. My job is not to be their financial advisor. And what do you think that comes from? I mean, do you think they just don't have uh, the instinct to take care of themselves or they think it's just going to keep on coming all the time? Or there's a maybe some self-destruction in there? I, I think it's all the above of what you just said. And what I've learned is that often we carry the patterns of our family and our family's history with how we think about money. And some people, um, it's feast or famine, and that's going to be the story of their life. And I mean, I know for myself, I early on knew that one, anytime I made money, I had to put it aside. I had to save it to build up a cushion. And then secondly, I knew for my business to grow, I had to reinvest it back in advertising and having a better website and doing things to grow the business. And However, that's not how I was raised. Um, I literally had to do a lot of reprogramming around money and, and to learn about money because I was never taught about money, anything other than we don't have enough money. And I grew up in poverty where literally I would, my mom would disappear for weeks and not feed us. And we would have to go trash picking to go feed ourselves. So that was my understanding of, of money. Well, you really have two different childhoods, right? I do. In reality. Yeah. You kind of have your pre six, seven childhood and your post six, seven childhood. Um, uh, I grew up in Jersey city, New Jersey. That's where I was born. And I didn't know my father. My mom was a drug addict, alcoholic, and she was very abusive to, she had six of us and through two different men in her life. And, um, she would leave us at times and disappear and lock us in this one bedroom, pretty dingy apartment. We had no furniture except a mattress and a few chairs. Um, and we would often not have food to eat. And, and so, um, and we'd be afraid. And then when she was around, uh, sometimes we would have food and, and then other times we were being beaten. So it was a very, um, scary, uh, tumultuous environment. And I was in and out of foster care, uh, for the first nine years of my life until I was adopted. Uh, so that was one picture I grew up in, uh, you know, dirty apartment, no parents, no food, um, and abuse. And I was, uh, taken. And what was worse, uh, foster parents or your actual mother? My actual mother. I mean, it was terrifying. And that was something I had to overcome stepping into the art world because as a child, I was, um, if I spoke up, if I made noise, I was beaten. So I, I had to, years later, find a way to um, look at people and look at people in the eyes and have these direct 
conversations and not be afraid that I was going to get in trouble for an opinion or for speaking up. Um, and, and so that was one reality that I was raised in. And then my younger sister and I were placed in an incredible home in Hunterdon County, New Jersey. And the mother wanted to foster young girls. And so she brought us in and, um, it was a totally different reality. It was a beautiful farm with, um, rolling grass and, and trees and a vegetable garden and a beautiful farmhouse. And I had my own room. I had clothes and uh, food every day. Um, so I quickly stepped into another reality. So, I, you know, early on, my needs were taken care of. And um, that was, uh, you know, not only comforting, but enable me to start learning and engaging in the world like a normal child. Uh, I didn't learn how to read until I, I started going to school while I was at their house as a foster child uh, around seven. And then um, I had to catch up to be put in the first grade and uh, catch up to my peers at that age. And um, I had to work really hard to do that. Um, but as far as the the money coming into play, my my dad uh, was a corporate guy, my adopted dad, and my dad was caring for six kids, and four of us went to college, so he had to pay college bills. And um, I know how hard he worked, and that was the model that was set in front of me to work really hard to make money and to make it in the world. I came from that. You know, I came from working class folks, yeah. you, know, middle, you know, white collar working, working class. Yeah. Folks. I mean, middle class, you yeah. Know. yeah, college educated, but you know, not, there isn't a lot of disposable income, not in the way that you and I get to see it as art dealers. I mean, let's oh, face yeah. it, buying pretty pictures is like the ultimate of disposable income choices. It is. It's the very last <laughs> thing that anybody should be spent, you know, <laughs> <laughs> what? What are you buying? And how much are you spending? And why? And wow, that's crazy. Exactly. Something hit me in the earlier part when you were talking about taking care of the artists and uh, the joy that you have in that. And I wonder if that possibly comes from having been sort of saved yourself, that you're modeling that. That's quite possible. I know for me, I watched a lot of people in my industry um, misuse and abuse artists. And as someone who came from a background of abuse, um, I always knew when things were not right. And I have a sensitivity to and an opinion about what's right and what's not right, especially in business and integrity and treating people with care and respect. And it was really clear to me that with a gallery business, you don't have a business without the art and you don't have the art without the artist and it's beyond the commodity. And so I knew when I started my business that the thing that I hadn't seen was someone that was running, um, an artist centered or a heart centric art business. And so for me, that was going to be part of the foundation of how I would have these relationships with artists. In the contemporary world and, and that translating into the conversations with clients and knowing at a deep level what I was selling and, and who I was selling and why. And then really word of mouth spread pretty rapidly about my business and the artists were 
they were my champion. They talked about my business to everyone and how amazing I was, and they still do. And I have, I've worked with hundreds of artists and I've, I care about the interactions I have with people. My goal is to leave people in a better place. To me, it's very, uh, my business has always been very artist-centric. And then as I had more clients, it became very client-centric. And then the two really just melded. You ever find those at odds? Yeah, what I've, what I've, I've encountered artists um, that don't have um, a lot of self-confidence, um, not speaking highly of their own work. And that's been a, fr- that, I've had that experience a few times where I've kind of cringed and like, oh, come on, like you're better than that. And, you know, I, I know clients don't want to hear about how insecure someone's feeling about a particular painting. They're not going to buy it. So, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's a very delicate balance I found in my own career of how much you expose the artist to the collector. Yeah, that are, are, there's a reason why artists need galleries, and not it's not just because sometimes they're not great at putting their best foot forward to explain themselves, but sometimes th- their nature to be raw, to be in tune to their own feelings, can be very much at odds to a collector experience. It can, and now even with social media, there's even more. Um more artists out there talking and I sometimes ask myself like why would you say that and do you know the impression you're creating professionally and you don't know who's looking at you and I'm an art dealer and I'm seeing the post and I see a lot of unprofessionalism out there in the uh, or can you even give me an example of that that anything specifically happened recently with all the political stuff happening in our um right now that people having very opinionated opinions um, about the the elections. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a fine line between how much you say online. And now you can't really take back what you say. It's there. Have you ever had a collector say, I'm not as keen about this artist as I once was now that I read their comment on Facebook? Or, or just commenting on, wow, they're opinionated or they don't seem to be doing so well. And, and, and so... Yeah. Yeah. I've encountered it myself that, you know, it gives as much as it takes with with social media. For me, it's uh, the aura of professionalism and how you're putting yourself into the marketplace. And I'm not inclined to work with artists that are what I would describe loose cannons or, and and you can learn a lot about people through um, how they display their art, either on their websites or how they are appearing in social media. Have you had a situation, and I thought about this earlier when you're talking about starting as being a champion of the artists, you know, here it was, you were going into Philadelphia, brand new market for you, no way to know what's going to be successful or not. I mean, I've had the experience of, look, if I signed every artist's artwork I like, and just did that as a living period, let me rephrase that, I've liked the work of every artist I've represented but I haven't been successful at selling every artist who I've liked. Yeah. You know, what happened at first? I mean, you just get lucky that everybody you liked, everybody else liked. My idea with my gallery was really around authenticity. I wasn't going to hang or show anything that I wouldn't buy myself. That was number one. And Early on, I had some arguments with artists who felt strongly about having certain paintings appear in the show, and I said no. 
And by authentic, you just mean what you believe in or something else too? Authentic as in, um, you know, looking at a body of work, what the stronger pieces were um, and the type of art that I was interested in, which was um, mainly uh, contemporary abstract paintings that were very process driven and intellectual. And that became the core of my program. And I had a few people in the Philadelphia community tell me that the gallery wasn't going to do well because people didn't buy that type of art in Philadelphia. They bought figurative art, they bought landscape art, um, but they, didn't, they weren't buying abstract um, contemporary art. And they had things to back it up, like other galleries that had tried that before, but that had shut down and closed. And, and I just listened and said, all right, well, I, I need to find the people that want to buy the type of art that I want to sell. And what brought those people at first? I mean, you just have an open door like anyone else does. And it's, uh, yeah. it's the same people flowing down the street. I did have a lot of did you just traffic. Have... Okay. I was in a great neighborhood, Washington Square, and it's, it was developing. And um, it's a mainly residential area. So I'd have people that would stop in um, on the weekend or they'd see the light on at one in the morning and, and look inside and see art hanging on the walls. So uh, the artists and their communities and the artists talking about the gallery were bringing people in. Um, and then later on, the advertising started bringing people in. I talk about how uh, I moved into the basement of my building because I realized that my apartment rent was sucking up 1500 bucks a month that I could be putting into the business. So I consolidated and my building had um, a livable basement in it. So I moved into that and stripped away that rent and put it right back into advertising. And so that brought people in too. And then I started. Well, hold it. Your building is the building where you have a gallery. Yeah, I didn't own it at the time, but I later went on to buy the building. But I mean, um, so you had an apartment somewhere and then you had a gallery yeah. somewhere? Yeah. Okay. And the, the gallery building, I was on the ground floor and there were um, apartments above it that other uh -huh. tenants were occupying. Uh, and as part of my lease, the owner had given me usage of the basement space. And meant for storage. Meant for storage. So you stored had, yourself. I had a bathroom, a kitchen, shower, um, and it was a little bit moldy, but I cleaned it out and I moved in. But before you had that space, and, and I get to cheat because I read your book, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you were selling in your own apartment, right? Oh, yeah. Started first art consulting out of my apartment. It wasn't, I wasn't set up as an art gallery. It was a consulting office. and Consulting how? Um, working with um, corporations, um, uh, individuals who wanted to start a collection, and basically... Um, bringing them in to show them actual artworks um, when I couldn't bring them to an artist studio or when I didn't want them going to an artist studio. And, um, and then sometimes random people I'd meet at an event that would say, oh, let me come look at something. Um, I talk about my first sale was to a cab driver. You know, I chatted with him. He ended up buying some watercolors. He came into my apartment to look at uh, framing and I had a few moments where I was like, ah, this is awkward. And 
I, I knew that it was a stepping stone for me because I, I really love um, the educational aspect of, of the gallery market and tours and groups and people coming in to look at art and hearing about the artist. So um, it was temporary. You know, that, that was only for a few months that I did that because it, it quickly evolved. I was like, okay, I did a few consulting gigs that uh, went well. And I said, I'm ready to, I'm selling art to cab drivers and people and, and having conversations that are resulting in sales. And I almost needed to see if I could do it on my own without a gallery structure around me that I had been used to selling in. So it was the step I needed to take before stepping into my own gallery space. I hear these stories all the time. Okay. I know people. Uh, yeah. Well, hang on here. I hear the stories of the I'm sitting next to a person on the plane, and you know, by the time we landed in Paris, I held sold them two million dollars worth of blah blah blah. Yeah, right. Or I'm not that person. I have never had. That ex no, I've had people who I've met and then over time and evolved into something. But there was a lot of process and not even process, just things that happened between the I met a guy and then I sold the painting thing. Yeah. All right. Clearly, I know it's a cab ride. So it's not like you met a cabbie and then you befriended him over three months and eventually he bought a piece. So how did this go from where you going, lady, <laughs> to... Let me get you my checkbook. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you have a picture of me at that time, uh, I was always carrying stuff. I was, I had my hands full and, and this particular time I had a huge portfolio that I wasn't even sure was going to fit in a cab. And so, you know, here I am standing on the, the sidewalk, uh, flagging a cab down in Philadelphia and he gets out to help me try to finagle this portfolio into the cab. And so we're starting a dialogue right there. You know, for me, it was just, um, I, I, I truly love people. I love connecting with people. I love talking to everyone. Um, I just started chatting about him. How's your day going? And, you know, da, da, da. and what's he, him like right back to me? Well, what are you up to? Oh, I'm, going back to my apartment to bring some art and, oh, what do you do for a living? Oh, I just started art consulting um, and I started a new business. Oh, what's in the portfolio? Oh, it's this and this. And so I just through this conversation that was um, very open and curious and expansive, that's how it started. And um, I've had a lot of moments with, with my career where through my act of, of being uh, open and talkative to people and curious, that's led me to uh, meet clients and have these long-term relationships. And many of my early clients, they would wander in and I would just chat with them for 20, 30 minutes, give them a tour. Uh, they never had that experience before coming into a gallery space. So they kept coming back. Um, I'm a believer that you get what you put out. And if you are closed and unfriendly and snobby and you don't want to talk about what you're doing, then you're potentially missing opportunities. I want to know everything about everyone I'm around. And sometimes it drives my husband crazy, but I, I just, I love knowing people on a deep level. I used to tell all my art dealers all the time, this one line, and I'm sure I don't even understand it entirely, I think, but it, it means something to me nonetheless. I used to say, to be known is to be loved. 
and to be loved is addictive. First of all, it has to be genuine. You, yeah. you can't do that superficially. You can't do that as a device. People know what that is. You know, if, if you're going to be that person, like I'm going to write down everybody's birthday and then I'm going to oh, call them on that, that birthday, yeah. right? Or I'm going to write down the names of their kids and their, <laughs> you know, or their spouse and all that, and yeah. pretend like I'm somehow invested in life. You know, forget it. Just yes. surrender now. But if you naturally have an instinct for that, there is something not both seductive in the beginning and addictive going into time that you want to deal with people who are interested in you and care enough about you. The question is, and this is where I think there's a lot of people who have that talent, it doesn't translate necessarily into any success, is where the turn on that is. Because at least my experience is that doesn't necessarily organically develop into, I'm feeling so good about this relationship with you that I have with you. We've had a lot of fun talking about this piece of artwork. This is a piece of artwork I want to buy. Somewhere in there, there's a turn. Somewhere, yeah. no matter how real you are and being that person who is interested in that level, yeah. has to become the art dealer, has to become the professional. Sure. And say, here's a moment where I'm going to start addressing them as a prospective buyer, not just a person who I'm excited to share something with. Yeah, absolutely. Did you, do you have that instinctively? Or did you have to learn that after a while? Um, well, I learned everything I could about sales. And I read a ton of books. I studied it. And the cool thing about practicing or having my own business is that I could literally practice it. Uh, but my initial goal was to build rapport with people and build the relationship. And um, I had one client that came in for five years before I bought a painting. And I kept nudging and urging. And finally, I just point blank said, you know, you come in, you like the shows, you come to the openings. I know you like talking to me, but why haven't you bought anything? And his reply was, I've seen a lot of businesses come and go in Philadelphia. I've seen a lot of art galleries come and go. And I want to make sure that you're still going to be around. And I said, okay, well, five years isn't enough time for you. And you haven't seen anything you've liked in the last five years. And he said, no, I've loved it all. And he said, well, who do you love the most? What artist? Well, I love this artist. Okay, well, you know, that was the open door and that started the dialogue. And uh, he came back and bought from me in the next show. But but I know um, you would have been out of business if you waited five years on everybody. Yeah, no, it's so true. <laughs> but uh, I, some people know absolutely nothing about selling. I've met a lot of art dealers that are terrible salespeople. I was working in a gallery before I opened my own gallery and I was selling a $10,000 painting. And I remember thinking to myself, this painting's horrible. It's not worth $10,000. I don't, I don't think it is. And I wouldn't buy this painting. And I liked the artist, but I didn't like the painting. And I sold that painting to someone and it didn't feel good to me. And so that was a, a big moment for me. And I remember meeting someone uh, in sales who basically said, you should never have anything in your business that you wouldn't buy yourself. And that really stuck with me. So that became part of my vision with only selling what I would buy myself, including in a particular show where there could be 10 to 20 paintings. If one was not that great or wasn't finished, I wouldn't hang it and I wouldn't sell it. 
that's a tricky little bit of business though there you know uh what's tricky about it well there are artists you believe in but they have things that sometimes you're really into and sometimes that you're not and with that astonishingly sometimes things that you're not finds people that it's for you know i've had that where i love my artist i don't get this particular piece that they produced and have a collector that thinks it's the neatest damn thing in the world. Yeah. And I'm torn. Am I being disingenuous by being artificially enthusiastic for the client? Partially enthusiastic, artificially enthusiastic, because I'm happy when people are happy. But when it comes time for me to go, you got yourself a great piece, and I'm kind of doing it through a forced smile and grinting teeth of like, oh, you know, I just, that's not the one. I can't but, do that. But, you know, can I tell them that the baby they love is not the, you know what I mean? It's. Yeah. So you I, would I tell a mean. client. So if a client really fell in love with something that your artist produced, but that's really in your mind, not one of their better examples or even at all a good example of their work. Would you ever contradict the client or would you tell an artist, I'm just not going to show that. Oh, piece? I have contradicted my clients. You know, here's the thing too. We live in a marketplace where everything's online. You can research everything, 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 everything. And if I know that someone's about to make an investment and that there's something better or it's not the best, or there might be something better around the corner, am I going to let them know that? Yes. Um, so I, I feel like I have a responsibility to be honest about what someone's buying. Cause I, I mean, are, don't you find that people want to know what do you think? Oh, absolutely. And and so for me, when someone puts me on the spot, and I, I've, I've had this with corporate collecting too, where I, I have to be honest. I think it goes even deeper than what do you think. I think that's a global thing. Your business in some way or another has to express that fully on all fronts. It's not just in the moment when we're looking at a particular artist and I'm caught between a few different pieces or whatever it is. I think for the second someone steps into your gallery, your gallery has to in some way project we don't see ourselves just as a venue that this is a curated space that it's hanging here because we believed in it before it walked into the door in the first place and that there is a consistency in the endorsement and that ahead of time there has to almost be a projection first and foremost above everything else you've entered into a space that i take very seriously not necessarily with an attitude yeah, of like, yeah. oh, you need yeah. to respect it, you know, these hollowed grounds, but <laughs> <laughs> bow down. But, um, but it's critical because you're, you're creating this overall statement of that. If I've already made this established argument of everything in here is, at least in my opinion, of value and has importance to it, you don't need to ask me that question. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't mean to be speaking to you no, situation, no, it, but you know, I, that's where I connect on it. And what what popped into my head was that you see this with the art fairs and you have hundreds of, of dealers coming together and everyone's investing so much money to be at that art fair. Um, it's expensive and you don't know if you're going to sell anything. And everyone has a different approach. And my approach has been to go out and find the best work that I can present with the program that I'm curating. And I, 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 I feel break that like, down for me a little bit. Break it down. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm getting the global concept here, but how does that translate? There's a lot to look at at an art fair, 
And there's, I mean, I'll be honest, there's a lot of junk too. There's a lot of crap. And But you don't manage um, the whole art fair. You're just making your contribution. I'm making my contribution with my program and, and my booth and the space and the concept I'm presenting. And there are pieces coming out of an artist studio that are more significant and important and uh, in their overall body of work of a particular time period. And there are pieces in the secondary market that um, are also really significant and important. And so part of me uh, wants to go out and find the best work I can find within the studios um, in the context of someone's history and pull it together and curate it into a quality program. Um, and it's not about flash. It's about quality. And you're taking a pretty big risk. I mean, you oh, believe yeah. in it, but I, I've, that's, you're, you're not, you know, representing, you know, one of the top 20 artists who are living in, you know, art today. I'm not, uh, no. you're, so we can't expect that everybody read about who you were handling, you know, in Art in America last month. And now they understand what this is or, or they trade in it themselves. So they get it. That would be easier. And, <laughs> yeah, it would be a lot. <laughs> Can you make that happen, right. Danny? <laughs> <laughs> But there seems to be two real basic approaches to art fairs these days, right? Yeah. It's, I'm going to bring out what I think is great and hope you're down with me on that. Or I'm going to bring out the same thing that a lot of people bring out, but we all know what it is. So I can signal to you in very basic languages, meaning I'm going to put up my... Andy Warhol, and I'm going to put up my, you know, you, you name the major artist, Keith Haring, or, you know, yeah, whatever it is. Ken Nolan painting. I had a. Yeah, or even Banksy more contemporarily. Yeah. Okay. But I'm going to work with some of the basics here so I can say I have the brand. Yeah. So you have these two choices, but yeah. you're talking about something that's just slightly to the middle of that. I was just going to say, I'm in, I'm in the middle of it. And right. I certainly have flash here and there. Um, I mean, if you want to call it that, Kenneth Nolan or Jasper Johns or um, a Pollock painting. And, you know, those the sale of those paintings helps carry my art fair expense. Um, but, you know, where my true heart is are the contemporary artists that are still living and that are in the marketplace, uh, making great art. But more importantly, it declares your ranking. Yeah. And says, what level I'm at? Yeah. I'm, a, I'm an art dealer who has a Jackson Pollock. Yeah. Right. And then it's I kind have, of... I have access to more than I show with it. I just, I, I, I love living, breathing, uh, mid-career to the next tier up artist. Talking about fairs are a big part of your, uh, your business model now. They have been. And yeah. this is kind of new to me, I have to confess. I'm late to the game, and it's because I'm in, you know, as affairs <laughs> have become a bigger thing, I'm an agent. So I'm not in the model where a gallery directly representing an artist, where a lot of affairs are. What I'm wondering is, is what's the difference between those two collectors? Or is there a difference? Um, you know, the person who goes to the fair and you're selling to and you pick up as a client, is that any different from the collector who you pick up on the floor of your own gallery? Um, oh, yeah, quite different for my marketplace of Philadelphia. Um, I've met clients from around the world that aren't shopping in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania for contemporary art and aren't going to wander into my physical space. And they're not going to uh, find me on the Internet unless uh, 
exactly what I'm showing is in alignment with what they're collecting. So um, it's been, it, for me, it's, it's enabled me to accelerate the global aspect of my business and working with clients around the world, whether it's Mexico City, um, Italy, uh, Costa Rica. And these are people that aren't flying into Philadelphia to come look at art. So, you know, when you have 40,000 people coming through a space over uh, a four or five day fair, there's a lot of opportunity there to connect with people you wouldn't know. And I, you know, you said you relate to to the game. Um, We've only done art fairs for eight years. And when I started doing them, it was, I finally had enough money to do them. And I was late to the game. And, and I don't, I think you can come in at any point. It's just a heck of a lot more expensive right now to enter than it was uh, back in 2001 when they were really starting to pick up speed. I think it's also, a, it's a hard environment to figure out though, still. None I think of it's us... overwhelming for the collector. Yeah. Uh, it's, there's a lot to take in. And, what I've seen the last five years is that more and more people are now hiring and relying on art advisors, which I love because they're going to do their research. They're going to guide the person in a great way. And tell me about that. I, I haven't run into a lot of art advisors in my life. Uh, you see and, them at the fairs. Yeah. And, well, I haven't had, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, and you know, I, I go to the fairs, but I don't work them a lot. The, you know what I wonder, look, my connection with that is, for years, I've dealt with designers, interior designers, mm -hmm. and I have to confess: the minute someone says I'm an interior designer, I I, I cringe, if not actually want to walk away from the conversation. Why? I not love working that, with designers. Well, for to, here's why: because designers are not approaching it as actual consultants. Their one, their goal is is to make a pretty environment. It's not to make a real art acquisition. They're not looking for getting someone making their client a collector of that artist it's just wall fill which Some means of them are. and they're working with budgets usually they are and they're looking for galleries or artists that are going to give them a finance a break that's going to allow them to get a markup in there because you have a lot of interior designers where that's their whole model of business so they're you're, you're putting these positions where they want a discount on the art or they want to kick back on the art for a person who's not buying it because they're invested in you, meaning you, the artist. Yeah. So that's why I would. But it sounds like yeah. the consultant is something different. I, I love different challenges. And, you know, budgets can be one challenge. Um, design is another challenge. And, and I love working with people on commission artworks. And, you know, I, I love it because it's a new client stepping into my world and with an advisor it's not someone that i would necessarily um be meeting because they're already working with someone and if someone wants to step into my world i i want to um connect them with what they're interested in or show them something that they haven't considered okay that's why i love it do you find the advisors ever bring out the client Oh yeah, you see it at, at the Is art it? fairs. So they're just walking with their collectors, and you see, I'm such a cynic. I would be seeing it as these are people who have a relationship with a person that's already an identified collector, and they're just protecting their their customer at this point. Not protecting their customer from you, but protecting you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> protecting themselves rather from losing their their collector. Yeah, and I um I've built 
many long-term relationships with my clients. So I really respect people's relationships and um, I'm grateful for the opportunity to do business with people. So I, you know, my thing is um, work with as many qualified people as I can. I think you're also in a world where it's not even a choice for you at this point. They exist. They exist. And yeah, I did want to ask, and it's almost a, a response to your question to me. You asked me why I wanted to do this podcast. Yeah. It's kind of your turn now. You have a successful gallery business, got a lot, have a lot of collectors, have a reputation for yourself. You really have nothing to prove. But you wanted to do something that terrifies me, which is have to sit down and write a book. Yeah. So why did you have to write a book? I wanted to write this book because I wanted people to know my actual story and my where I came from and where I landed as really for creative types, people in the industry is one possibility. And there are a lot of people that want to be in the art world that feel like they can't break in and can't really get into it. And um it's a prelude to the next book I want to write, which is about the business world of the art world and um, for artists and then for gallerists, because um, there are a lot of galleries that open and close. And in the last 17 years that I've been operational in Philadelphia, I've seen 10 businesses open and close. And so what happened? You know, why why is someone like me still in business and why weren't they able to sustain in the same marketplace? And so, um, I want to write, I am really interested in the business side of the art market and the art world and on the artist side and then the art dealer side, because there are great artists that never make it in the marketplace and they're not known and they'll never be in a gallery. And I knew I was going to go in that direction, but before I went there, I wanted people to know that I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth. Actually, my beginnings were really incredibly challenging. Here's my story. Um, and you know, a lot of times people think they know you or they want to make up stories about you. And I, I wanted people to know my story from me. It almost seems like there's five to ten different things packed into that. Yeah. So forgive me, forgive me for fishing around a little yeah, bit. Yeah, go for it. So here's what I'm hearing in it. Unrelated entirely to the art business. It sounds like there's a desire to be seen. There's also, it seems like, coming as an art dealer, a bit of the point you're trying to make is building a successful art business is not dependent upon station in society, in your own life, and the good fortune of the things that come with that. It's not another version of rich people being born on third base. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It wasn't because my family knew a bunch of rich people and that introduced me to the business. You know, yeah. that this can be done by legitimate representing artists the right way and talking to collectors the right way. Oh, yeah. And I I've um, I have friends that um, are very well educated that want to open galleries or be in the art world, but they're too afraid to do it. And they don't there's no. This isn't taught in any, it's not like um, going to get your MBA where you're going to come out and be an analyst or do this or that. One of the ways to learn is through other colleagues in the industry. And not many people want to talk about what they do that creates their success. And I want to. So I'm only left with, with one question I didn't ask as we were talking. Uh, that Kelman came up rather recently, talking about your consulting. What is the most common mistake that's being made up? 
said, you see, you've seen a lot of galleries come and go in your neighborhood. What, what's the thing that they're not getting or? There's, um, that, that it's a business and, um, that, you know, I've seen some artists open galleries and I've seen gallerists open galleries that have never worked in a gallery, don't know the industry and, um, just think that they're going to put pictures up on a wall. People are going to come in, they're going to sell them and they're going to stay in business. And there's no vision. There's no mission. There's not a lot of connection to the artists. There's not a connection to the community. So I think there's more of a surface level idea of what being a gallery is. That's what I've noticed. Yeah, I have to agree. And I've had some hard conversations with a lot of gallery owners. And usually the biggest mistake they make is they think this is something they can go into unlike any other field that they could imagine. You know, it's funny. Most gallery owners, I find, they, they come from another field typically at some point, right? And usually they're opening a gallery because they had some success in that field. It gave them some money. And now they want to do something that's a lot more fun. Yeah. You know, or at least a lot more sexy to say when they're at a party with their friends. Yeah. You know, they had... <laughs> They had been a CPA, you know, and now they're 50 and they put some money away, yeah. right? And and they don't want to have a boss anymore, whatever it is. Yeah. And, and, and they want to get some more joy out of life. And then they go in and they do something completely contrary to what they would have done in their own career that got them to that point. Yes. You know, they would. if I told anybody, well, I could just become a CPA tomorrow, just give myself a copy of QuickBooks, right? And then just go get people's, you know, accounting and add up the numbers is that what it is and they'll go no <laughs> there's there's laws yeah. and there's a there's a lifetime of, of science and art that's involved in becoming good at this and oh, there's yeah. culture to it and you know you really have to understand a lot of different nuanced things to be any good at this field yeah. but i'm just going to hang a shingle up and put some artwork on my wall and put lights on it and yeah. say i'm an art gallery and yeah and I people would come in and say, Oh my God, this must be so much fun. And your job is fun. Uh -huh. And I would think, yeah, I mean, I, I love my job. It's actually not a lot of fun most of the time because I'm pounding the pavement and, you know, nothing's happening at times. And, um, it looks fun to people on the outside. And the reality is that there are a lot of challenges, especially with challenging artists or a challenging marketplace and, mm -hmm. and or with a challenging economy. And there's a lot to know. And a lot of times people just don't know. They see the surface of what it looks like. They don't know what, what's uh, in store for them. Anything we should have talked about that we didn't get to? No, just I'm, I'm excited um, about my book and thank you for, uh, thank you for the interview. In my hands right now is my own personal autographed copy of Bridget Meyer's new book, The Art Cure. It's a great read, and it's a great story, not just for us art dealer folk, but for anyone who loves a true story about a strong woman's journey to success despite a lot of incredible challenges. I recommend it. Now, if you're enjoying this show, and I hope you are, and you've been asking yourself, what can I do to say thanks? How can I put a little something in Danny's little tip jar without actually spending any real money? Well, there's a few ways you can be doing that. One, spread the word a little bit. 
Put it up on your Facebook page. Put it on Twitter. As a matter of fact, over at iTunes, if you go to the show's listing, there's a little drop-down arrow thing that allows you to put it directly onto your own Facebook feed. It shows the show's logo and all these really nifty things. And if you don't know how to do it, I'll help you and I'll walk you through it. Two, subscribe. In podcast land, it's typical to have 2 to 4% of your listeners tune in and listen through the website for the show. In the case of our show, with all of you tech-savvy art dealers out there, we're at 45%. It's crazy. I get laughed at by people in the podcasting community. So please, subscribe. Listen on your phones. You can listen when and wherever you like. Do like the cool kids do. Three, and this is a biggie. Write us a review over there at iTunes. Can't figure out how? Drop me a line and I'll tell you how to do that or any of the other couple things too. And that leads me to the thank yous for the week. Here are two listeners who have dropped a little bit of symbolic coin into my tip jar up on iTunes. Where, by the way, we have nothing but five-star reviews across the board. Pretty proud of that. First, Tina Palmer. Tina said some very kind things about my voice. I don't know why I value that so much, but I do, so thank you. She says also in the review, and I'm quoting here, Thanks for doing this. As a working artist for the past 16 years, I love hearing from so many veterans in the art business. And I'm feeling a bit like a veteran myself since I can relate. Keep it going. End quote. Thanks, Tina. I will keep it going if you keep on listening. And if I stop, we all know who to blame. No, I'm just kidding, Tina. Thank you again. And and as I noted, Tina is an artist, and you should go check out her work. It's actually some great stuff. TinaPalmerArt.com is the site you can go look at it. Next, Can Do Nan. Yes, it's the guy from the Art World News ad that I did a little bit earlier. Thank you, Can Do Nan, for participating in an ad that I didn't get your permission for. I hope that's okay. Uh, I also wish... uh, You'd write in and let me know who you really are and maybe even tell me your real name and the name of your business. It'd be great to get to meet you. The title he gave his review is Listening Intently. Like I noted before, he owns, I guess it's a he, he owns his own framing business and he has for the past 25 years. And here's what he said that I did not put in that Art World News ad. Quote, Listening to the podcast broadens my understanding of how art I frame gets in the hands of my clients. Your podcast confirms what I have also discovered over these years, that sales is about relationships with people, not coldly hawking wares. Testify can't do, Nan. He also asked that the piano music be turned down a bit in the background. All right, no tech in. I really appreciate the feedback, too, and uh, I'll try to do my best. And I'd like to thank our sponsor partners, Art World News, Relevant Communications, The Art World's Publicists, Redwood Media Group, and their next show coming up, Art Expo New York 2017. Please go over and check out their websites to learn more. So until next time we meet here at my little corner booth in the back of the old art dealer bar, May the collectors fall from the trees like coconuts the size of elephants. Good night, my art dealers. Good night. This has been The Art Dealer Show. 
You can find us online at artdealer.show. We can also be found at most every social media site with the handle Art Dealer Show. Got something to tell us? Got something to ask us? Email me directly at danny at artdealer.show. 